2: Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Cass,
1: as you very well know, uh, Valentine's Day was a couple weeks ago, so I'm curious, did you and Sean do anything
2: special for the holiday? (laughs) Well, it just so happens Valentine's Day almost always falls on our annual family and friends ski trip to Red River, New Mexico. So we were skiing on Valentine's Day. What about you two? Uh, Well, we kept it pretty chill. Um,
1: You know, I live in New York, so dining out on Valentine's Day in New York City is pretty much a nightmare. (laughs) Uh, it's, it's, It's really one of the busiest restaurant days of the entire year, so... We usually just skip it and do a lovely meal at home because we both cook um, and we both love to cook. So that's exactly what we did this year. I roasted some cauliflower. I made some scallops with a really lovely lemon sauce. My boyfriend uh, made some steaks. We popped open a bottle of bubbles and we watched The Joker, which I know you don't want to see and perhaps it's not the most romantic movie, but um, I never really feel the need to go all in for that kind of like, you know, traditional stuff. I feel the same way about gifts. You know, Ali for Valentine's Day got me this really awesome vintage late 60s, early 70s floor tension lamp. You know, it's it's one of those ones that tensions itself between the floor and the ceiling. That um, I'd really been wanting one of these. And, and so he got me that instead of this, you know, sort of time-honored duo of chocolates and our jewelry. And speaking of jewelry... I have a fun fact. Did you know that between the two holidays of Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, Cass, Americans spend, and get this, on average, a staggering $10 billion every year on jewelry. (laughs) Not surprising. (laughs) (laughs) And that's just those two holidays alone. That's not including, you know, the winter holidays. That's not including birthdays, anniversaries, or engagements. That's only on Valentine's Day and Mother's Day, which is incredible. I had no idea.
2: Yeah, me neither. And that's actually just a small fraction of the $300 billion exchanged globally from the mining of approximately 90 million carats of rough diamonds and 1,600 tons of gold every single year. And of course, with that colossal sum of money on the line, well, human nature can and does falter, sadly, succumbing sometimes to unbridled greed and avarice, often quite literally on the backs of others
1: how many of us have really truly considered the true cost of our jewelry? I mean, we may very well recall the price that we paid for it, But what about this other price, the human and environmental cost? Cass, in 2018, the activist organization Human Rights Watch published a study, which is called The Hidden Cost of Jewelry, and it highlights some really heartbreaking, egregious instances of human rights abuses and environmental tragedies stemming from unscrupulous
2: mining operations. Such as when in 2008 members of the Zimbabwe military staged a bloody takeover of the diamond fields in the country's Merengue district and they slaughtered some 200 civilian miners. For the next six years, certain factors of the government's armed forces, military, and police oversaw a brutal and ruthless program of torture and forced labor, including forced child labor, in their quest to pilfer the diamond fields. In 2011, Human Rights Watch documented a pervasive program of sexual violence against workers at the hands of the private security company hired to protect the Portera mine in Papua, New Guinea, while a Canadian gold mining company began mining operations in the Moroto district of northern Uganda without even notifying or securing the necessary rights or permissions from the indigenous Karamajon community.
1: The grim reality is that the Gold around your neck, the silver on your wrist, the platinum on your finger, or the gems in your ears may very well have come from one of these mines or others like them. But do not despair, dress listeners, because today we're going to bring you an episode which hopefully informs and educates you about some of these issues that are going on in the jewelry industry and we hope to shed a light on the ever growing movement to right these wrongs and also to institute responsibility and transparency all along
2: the supply chain in the jewelry industry. Today, we are joined by jewelry designer, educator, and activist Bliss Lau to talk about ethics and responsibility in the jewelry trade and what we as a consumer can do to affect change. Bliss, welcome to the show. Bliss, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Yeah,
1: we're so excited to talk about jewelry today. But before we delve into what I think will be some rather surprising subject matter for a lot of our listeners, I'm hoping that you can tell us a little bit about your own background. Um, How did you become a jewelry designer? And specifically, when did you begin zeroing in on some of the problems in the jewelry industry that we're going to cover today? Sure. First, I went
3: to Parsons as a studied fashion design. And then I actually started off as a handbag designer. And I did that for several years. And I used to have this handbag that had the chains down the front of it that looked like the cables of the Brooklyn Bridge. Mm-hmm. And at some point, because I studied fashion design, I kind of was procrastinating, and for fun, I made myself a body chain with a chain that I had used on my handbags, and it became like a huge explosive interest in the industry.
1: Basically, like what we would call viral now, right? Yes, (laughs) yes.
3: That was actually, I was viral, and it was the first time I ever heard the word was when it went viral. Eventually, I made myself—actually, my first ring was a ring called the kaleidoscope ring, which is still in my collection, and because I studied apparel, I wanted to make a ring that— referenced apparel in the sense of when you get dressed, Mm -hmm. you get up every day. It's a form of identity. So you choose to put on your shirt and your jacket and your outfit, and it is who you are. And when I wanted to enter into the jewelry space, I didn't want to create something that was an imposition on your body. I wanted to create something that in that same way would give you choice. The kaleidoscope ring is one ring. It's made of four pieces. So every single day, you can choose to wear it differently and it can evoke your personality that's what I love about it. I actually am mostly a bespoke bridal designer now, and I've moved into fine jewelry in around 2014, and I did that because it wasn't really a plan. Um, My now husband proposed to me with a sketchbook and asked me to design my own ring, and it was actually at the Metropolitan Museum at the Alexander McQueen Show.
1: Oh, that's so lovely. Because he
3: knows I love fashion. (laughs) And it was the first experience that I had in picking out a gemstone and thinking about fine jewelry and then learning about fine jewelry. And eventually I stopped making costume jewelry and just fully dove into making fine jewelry and bespoke bridal.
1: So we know each other quite well. So I know your work quite well. You have been struggling a lot personally with some of the ethics. Um, within the jewelry industry. And this is like one of the new major directions of your work. So when did you first start becoming aware that there were problems? I mean, all
3: of us, we, everyone knows that there are certain issues when it comes to gold and diamonds and things like that. But it all feels like a really big idea, And when it's a really big idea, it doesn't feel like you can do anything. And one of the things that I love about the jewelry industry is that the jewelry industry is essentially made up of millions and millions of independent small businesses, myself included. And when I started, one of the things that I did that really made me realize that I could make an impact with my design, and also simultaneously made me realize how challenging it can be, was jade. So I'm half Chinese. And a couple of years ago, my father has now passed away, but in that during that process, um, I was really feeling like I wanted to reconnect with my Chinese culture. I was really asking myself a lot of questions around how materials have affected culture and what they mean to me because I'm so, jade is so important to me, I was like, why? Um, because the Chinese have always believed that jade is healing. My father passed away from cancer, and so wearing jade felt right. And I decided I was going to look into jade, and I could not find any jade that was responsible. I felt really conflicted about human trafficking and things that go into jade. I didn't feel comfortable buying jade. There was the pa- opacity of my questions of how the jade arrived to my doorstep was so impossible to break through that I ended up spending two years sourcing jade and now I have a collection of black jade. If you didn't know this, there is black jade in Australia. And so in that process of really going deep into creating jewelry on more of an autobiographical level, I ended up entering into a space where I was really, really thinking about product from, they call it downstream and upstream. Mm -hmm. And um, that sort of impacted how I think about everything I do and made me ask questions everywhere and ignited the transition into going into responsibility as a designer.
1: Yeah. And and you mentioned this phrase, human trafficking, earlier. And I think that's important and probably very surprising for a lot of people to think about. Um, we've talked about on the show in the past that the fashion industry and, and its tangential industries that support it employ approximately one out of six people on this planet. Um, but the jewelry trades also employ a shocking number of people globally, what can you tell us about this and and what what is actually the current state of like labor relations in the jewelry industry currently?
3: Well, okay, so there are 140 million people reliant on this trade. So if we just step back and ask ourselves, what does that mean in jewelry? Who are the people that work in jewelry? You have people like myself. Now, I am considered downstream. I am the designer, there's the retailer. If we're going backwards, how this is made, there are the casters and the digital 3D designers because there's a tremendous amount of technology in jewelry. There are technicians, geologists for the earth, metallurgists, which are important for the formulations of the jewelry, gemologists, scientists in labs who do certifications and research, stone setters and polishers, cutters, lapidary artists, which are stone cutters, vendors and traders. So when something is mined, then it is purchased. Sometimes it passes through 20 hands before it even gets to the gemstone cutter. So there are so many people involved in making jewelry. 40.5 million of those people are small artisanal miners and 30 to 50% of those are women.
1: And speaking of miners, I I think that When most people hear this term, their mind immediately goes to gold mining here in the United States Um, and in the U.S., especially the California gold rush of the 19th century. Hoping you can give us a little overview about how modern gold mining works. So let's start
3: with how gold lives inside of the earth. You have hard rock and alluvial. Hard rock deposits are essentially gold that is trapped in rock and needs to be removed. Alluvial deposits are, because of the elements and erosion over millions of years, the gold is loosely trapped in the sand and rock. Modern mining is basically done by large scale and independent miners. So you have corporate large scale miners and they run a highly mechanized business. They definitely employ people, but it's less people. And they're also publicly traded companies. So they are more regulated. And then we have this other sector called artisanal small scale. So this is where that 40 million come in. And these are individuals. They're often impoverished communities. Mining is a stepping stone out of poverty in many places. And one of the great things about mining is that it has incredible potential to contribute to social and economic impact. You can support miners and rise them up and bring on education and infrastructure
1: into their communities. That statistic that you said earlier, 30 to 50 percent of these small-scale mining operations are women. Yeah. I think that's going to be a very surprising statistic for a lot of people. It is. Yeah, there are a lot of women. They
3: are support systems oftentimes. They're not always primarily the miners, but things are changing. And I'm even working on a project with female miners that is really exciting. So there's a lot of progression that's happening. But to your question about the, the gold rush... San Francisco was actually created because of this 1849 gold rush. In 1848, there were something like 1,000 people living in San Francisco. And within a year, there were 100,000 because of the gold rush. And so you have to think about, again, the infrastructure and all of the people that surround it and the trade. There's people need somewhere to live. They need something to eat. They need something to wear. So all of that exists for that reason. And on an unfortunate level you still can't eat the fish in the San Francisco Bay because of the mercury from the mining.
1: And I think that this process um which involves mercury is something that we're going to get to here Later. in just a little bit. Um but basically gold bliss has been of course considered a precious metal in many cultures throughout history. Um you know, it wasn't just the 19th century that's that saw this boom. You know, gold was very much prized in ancient Egypt. The Aztecs, of course, were conquered in part because of their access to gold. Um, and even ancient Greek and Romans valued gold and wore gold jewelry. What I'm curious about is what is it that sets these modern-day practices of gold mining that you were kind of speaking of, um, what what distinguishes them from those of the past? I'm I'm going to guess that part of this has to do with this large scale industrialization of gold mining. You're guessing right, but <laughs> there it's it's pretty complicated.
3: Actually, the Romans were highly sophisticated and they invented techniques that are still in use today. Again, another reason why change is ripe. But The Romans invented a kind of alluvial mining where they would build aqueducts and collect water in tanks and release it. They used to call it gushing. And now, of course, the difference being we have electricity and we have machines. So they've adapted it and we call it hydraulic mining. But that technique is one of the most widely used techniques
1: throughout the world. So they're just like taking up the matter from the earth and pushing water through it, right? And then... Taking the gold out from the loose earth materials? Sort of.
3: So now instead of the Roman tanks, they have engines and they use what's called a suction dredge, which basically is like a giant hose that sucks up the water from the bottom. And this is where the silt, right? The the gold is lo- alluvial. So it's loosely in this dirt. So usually it's in a water body. It could be an ocean, a river, a stream, or a lake. They suck it up and... They blow it out and it separates it. Then it's collected into like a vat and then they can collect all of the gold ore from that. One of the things that can be challenging is what that creates is a cloudy, murky water once the water goes back into because you're pulling up all of that silt and it can create unlivable conditions for the aquatic life. Things that are different from... The days of the Romans to now are that we now are aware of – we have environmental awareness now. So even the large-scale mining companies have an awareness of what to do with
1: the excess or the chemicals that are used. And what are the chemicals that are used? Like, what is this process that we're looking at? Even the Romans use mercury, actually. In what way does mercury play a role in gold mining? Mercury is a binding agent, so it will it will
3: collect the gold that is in the silt, and then what happens is they have to separate the mercury from the gold.
1: On this point of mercury, i and I feel like most people out there probably know that it is extremely harmful to human beings as a element, right? Yes. Why is it being used in mining if it is so dangerous to humans and like what are some of these side effects that are coming out of its use? Well, why is mercury used? Yeah.
3: Mercury is used because it is a very, very good agent at capturing the gold. So it's like it's like kind of like magnetizes like it it attracts the gold, right? Yes. Yes. And the reason why it's still used is because many miners are not aware of how dangerous it is. And they may believe that they can take a shower and that it'll rub off of their skin. So this is where education becomes a really important part of the growing community of people who are trying to take care of these types of problems.
1: Mm -hmm. As I said at the top of the show, I think that so much of this information is going to be new to our listeners. Maybe our listeners have never really considered the fact that there are actually ethical concerns at play when you are buying jewelry. And this episode actually came about because one night you and I were out, we're having a glass of wine, and you were telling me about some of the both human and environmental impacts that were resulting um, from the gold mining that's happening in the Amazon right now, I think Peru. Um, if, uh, to be exact. And when you were telling me some of these things, I was like, what? We we have to tell people about this. People need to know what exactly is going on in the Amazon right now with gold mining.
3: So there is a film called River of Gold. It will be going public on riverofgoldmovie.com. So if you want to watch it, prepare yourself because it's this is the worst part of the industry. I just want to preface you with that. Yeah. After watching the film, I everyone, it's like you're crying. It's it's really sad. And basically, I learned a lot of things that I already knew, but seeing it in practice is, is very intense. And um, essentially, you asked me how they use mercury. So when they're doing this suction dredge mining, and then they collect all of the slurry and Earth that has most of the gold inside of it. That is then put into these vats. It's very inexpensive for the miners to get mercury. And they believe that it's the most efficient way of collecting the gold. And that is only because maybe they are not yet aware that there are other options or those other options may not be available to them. So in the film, what happens is they've collected it. And there is a part, and this is what I told you, is that there is a part where you see a vat that is, you know, it looks like the size of a giant trash can. And then you see somebody pouring some sort of shiny liquid in there, and you realize that's mercury. And then you see him step into it, waist deep, and stomp around, and then drain it out. And he's just, first of all, like, that mercury went into his skin. You're traumatized when you see that. He takes that mercury, and then they put it on a piece of metal and they have a flame and they burn away the mercury
1: so and then that's where they get the gold It's like a double whammy like yes it's it's going first of all he's standing waist deep in a vat of mercury and then they're heating it after it has attracted all the gold and all of those fumes go into the environment That
3: mercury then is dumped out, and it goes into the water stream, and therein lies the tragedy. Into the river. Yes. And mercury doesn't go away. It is a naturally occurring substance, but this is why there needs to be a change, and education needs to be invested in, and... This is one of the reasons why I feel so passionate and to even speak about this at all because I had switched over to recycled gold many, many years ago and have been behaving very responsibly as a business for a long time. But there was just a point when I feel like the more people know, the more likely they are to ask questions. So what you can do if you're sitting here and thinking, this is huge and I feel like I have no control over anything, right. is the the way that this will change, the way that these practices will change is by – The consumer, the buyer, when you go and buy gold from wherever you're going to buy, ask where it came from. And if they don't know, they will tell their bosses who will tell their bosses. And that will become something that if you say, I would really like to know where the gold comes from. And if they don't know, you can say, I would love it if you can find out. And I would be more likely to buy from you if so. And I think that they'll hear you. And then maybe we can all make change together.
1: Yeah. And voting with your dollar is one way that we can all make a huge impact, whether it be talking about gold, whether it be talking about diamonds, whether it be talking about any of the other things um, that we all buy every single day. You know, you and I were kind of talking about food the other day it applies to that as well. All of these processes that I think are coming into question here, you know, 2020, now we're in a new decade. I think this new decade is going to kind of breed this culture of questioning of why, how, and just make us all reconsider where things came from and how that impacts other people and the earth. And The good news is
3: there are a ton of people who care just as much as we do, and a lot of those people are gold miners and vendors and makers, and we are creating a movement, and it's really exciting. And every year more people join in, myself included, and there are a lot of opportunities to buy recycled gold and fair mined gold, and there's jewelers everywhere in every city and every town that I'm sure will know about it. I'm involved in the responsible jewelry community, and there's this lovely man named Toby Pomeroy who's actually in Ghana right now testing out a mercury-free option. He has a website called Mercury-Free Mining Challenge if anyone feels like they want to donate to his initiative. It's really wonderful, and they're testing out um, centrifugal technology. That is an alternative to mercury. There are a lot of different alternatives to mercury that are out there. It just is a question of miners being educated. And so that's our goal. There's so much gold that already exists on this planet that has already been mined. Do we need to mine more? Maybe. But for me, as an independent jeweler, I switched to recycle gold a very long time ago. Mm-hmm. So where does my recycled gold come from? It's certified. It comes from jewelry. And Mm -hmm. even if I make something that is overseas, I am still buying the recycled gold from here, from the United States, where there is a plant that um, recycles. So... I think that there's there's a lot of questions when it comes to gold, and in a way, I really want to tell you that recycled is the best way, but I leave it to you to make this decision because there is a wonderful company that is an NGO that created a Fairmind Gold. I just got my Fairmind Gold license. I actually just sold my first Fairmind ring to a client this past week, Yay! which was really exciting. Fairmind Gold is mined gold. so. If you were to make this decision and you want to work with recycled versus fair mind, I ask you the question of what's more important to you? Do you want to have something that has neutral impact or do you want it something that has impact? Because fair mind gold is gold that is mined by people. And again, these are people who are bringing themselves out of poverty. They have jobs. You're giving jobs by buying their mind gold. It encourages better practices. and. It has a reduction in mining pollutants and increased environmental standards, also equal employment rights for women, which I love. And what they do basically is charge a little bit more for the gold. And that goes into a democratic decision-making process within the mine where they get to decide how they want to use that premium. So maybe they need clean water or education In their communities? In their communities. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really exciting. I'm hoping that I can do more work with Fairmind Gold. That's where I feel there is a bigger question when you, it's almost debilitating to learn about all of the things that are bad in the world, and then you ask yourself what you can do to make a difference. As an independent jeweler, I can actually make a really big difference in a community by buying their gold. They may not be mining a huge amount, and that's what I think is great about jewelry and fine jewelry, especially, because if you are out there and you're deciding, I'm going to go get engaged and buy an engagement ring, your one engagement ring can actually impact somebody, right? So, or a
1: lot of somebody's, yeah, yeah. I mean, because you said by the time um, maybe either gems or gold get to you, it might have passed through twenty different people's hands or more. And I happen to know that you, Bliss, are working on some very technically advanced solutions to ensure the transparency of the supply chain in your own work. So, what is blockchain and what do you foresee the applications of blockchain technology to be in terms of jewelry? Because when we're talking about ethics, when we're talking about sustainability, when we're talking about responsibility within the fashion industry one of the major cornerstones here is transparency blockchain is actually a really exciting opportunity
3: for the jewelry industry blockchain essentially offers an opportunity for full transparency you can track your item in upstream to downstream so the designer I'm downstream upstream is when it's extracted from the earth so if at every point somebody registered it into the chain and what how does that get
1: registered like what is the nitty-gritty of the blockchain process
3: so in order for that to work there needs to be a technology company that creates a very simple way that people can register it into the chain maybe like you could associate it with an app even mm-hmm. And I was in Tucson, which is the biggest gem show in the world, and I went to this show and I met a bunch of people who were developing blockchain. There's a few that are being developed for jewelry. And I was really excited, and I remember coming to you and telling you about it. And it's been about a year since that happened, and the blockchain has actually been put into practice. And I'll tell you that it, it's not ready. <laughs> not there yet. It's not there yet for a few reasons. People lie. Mm. This is just a fact. You can never change it. Once it goes into the chain, it can't be updated.
1: So basically, what you, what what blockchain in terms of jewelry would be is if you have, let's say, a diamond or an emerald, um, you would be able to register its source of origin, who mined it, who cut it, um, yeah. and trace all these little bits and pieces of information about that exact gem to ensure that it was responsibly sourced,
3: right? Yeah, so it's a digital fingerprint at every point. Exactly. For this product, and then even set into a piece of my jewelry, for instance. Envision a family tree. Yes. It looks kind of like that. Through blockchain. So what are the problems with blockchain? Okay, are you putting a miner at risk by by geotagging the location of their mine? Ah, yeah. Yes, in many cases. So... Cross that off the list. Maybe you won't get the miners. Number two, the internet is notoriously expensive in Africa. And not everything comes from Africa, but is it valuable for people? Do they even have smartphones to be able to access this? So there's there are all these other questions. But let's say they did and everything was put into it. Do they have time? Blockchain works really, really well for big business. People who can hire somebody just to register things into the chain. As an archivist, we call it metadata. Metadata, yes. But that isn't something that exists in the jewelry industry. For example, the jewelry industry is made up of millions of independent small businesses. I have a company that I work with in Sri Lanka that is a cutting facility. There are three people. They are third generation in Sri Lanka. Gemstone cutters, we call them lapidary artists. It's him and his brothers. They named the business after their sister. And they sit and cut all day. And they have a certain way that they buy things. And it's it's also a really difficult explanation to try and have them register onto the chain. So once this happened, I actually contacted the guys in Sri Lanka that I work with, or all of the different vendors I have. None of them would register. It isn't that they didn't want to. They just didn't have time. A year later, 15 emails later, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Bless, I promise. They just didn't have time. Right. Right. So we're not quite there yet. Yeah. And there's a lot of cool innovations that are happening in jewelry, but I think that the most important thing is that we move towards transparency. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Because transparency builds accountability. And I think we all hear this term transparency a lot, and it's hard to really understand what that idea means and why it's important. It seems like it's just a buzzword, but for us, it's really important because accountability breeds, um, you know, it's the, like we were talking about human rights earlier. It, it supports people being paid properly, being treated properly, and that's our goal. And eventually we'll reach responsibility. And once we get there, then it can just be normal.
1: Yeah. We're going to take another word from our sponsor, but more from Bliss after this. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. In the media over the last couple decades about the diamond trade and so-called blood diamonds so for any of our listeners who may not be entirely familiar with this term blood diamonds or conflict diamonds why the scary terminology for something that we all generally consider to be very beautiful conflict
3: diamonds the term exists because of the wars in the early 90s in sierra leone and rwanda And these rebel forces used diamonds to finance wars, which is just a horrible, horrible thing that happened. And nobody wants that to happen again. So once people realized that that was a problem, the industry got together and created something called the Kimberley Process, which is an international certification for rough diamonds. The Kimberley Process has its own issues, which is for another day. But one of the more important... Things to think about is that those wars are over. So that's good.
1: Basically, it was it, diamonds were being used as a form of currency in order to fund these conflicts that were happening. They were funding wars. Yeah. Yeah. But I actually saw a commercial very recently that I found very intriguing. And this was for Lab grown diamonds. So, Phyllis, what are lab-grown diamonds and how do they differ from naturally occurring diamonds? Lab-grown diamonds
3: are diamonds. They are basically the exact same thing. You cannot tell the difference between them, which is why people are so scared that they'll be flooding the industry and be presented as natural diamonds. But I think that there's there's a really big conversation that people love to talk about, about are lab-grown diamonds going to change the value of diamonds, devalue natural diamonds? The FTC changed their regulations in 2019 that you're not allowed to call them eco, because when they first came out, a lot of companies were claiming that they're more eco-conscious. I use lab-grown diamonds. But when making that choice, think about two other things. Number one is diamonds... Do last, you know, millions of years. They're gonna last longer than we will on the planet. You can buy a diamond, we call them post-consumer, that is recycled. Yes. It's
1: and pulled. this has been a huge part of the jewelry trade for centuries. Like there's always been kind of this trajectory of like recycle, reuse. Within the jewelry trade, right?
3: It's true. Circularity has always been a part of the of the jewelry trade from when they first discovered they could melt gold and to shapes and form it. They saved the extra bits and remelted it, and therein lies circularity. And this is, again, one of the reasons why it's a little bit of an uphill battle to talk about transparency with certain people in the industry because we've always been circular, and so we feel like we're already Involved in the forward momentum. Going back to lab grown diamonds, if you are to ask yourself if you're going to buy a lab grown diamond versus a natural diamond, if you buy a natural diamond, you could actually be contributing to one of those 40 million people who are pulling themselves out of poverty, who are miners. Miners are not all people who are being abused. Many miners are being given an opportunity by mining. And oftentimes they can make more money mining than any other job that they, is available to them. It can pull them out of poverty. It can bring money into their family. And so choosing not to buy a mined stone is basically buying a stone from a lab grown company. And a lot of these lab grown companies are just factories, mm-hmm. you know, ultimately. It's not actually really made in a lab anymore. It's a it's a it's a factory made stone. Right, right.
1: And and even some of the biggest names in the diamond trade have now launched their own kind of like sub-businesses selling both naturally mined diamonds and also lab-grown diamonds. So it's kind of like this interesting twist, I feel like, that's happened in the jewelry industry.
3: But I feel, I feel conflicted. And I present you with the two ideas because I would like you to make your own decision. Obviously, it's, it's not environmentally good to mine, but mining does help people. And so you're constantly... The jewelry industry is a world of these sort of conundrums where you're like, is it good? Is it bad? I want to help people. Of course, you want to help pull people out of poverty, but I don't want them to extract things from the earth. But yet if that's their only opportunity. So in in many ways, you kind of just have to really weigh out what matters to you. Are you going to choose humans? Are you going to choose the earth? Are you just a person who loves future fitting your life and you love the fact that you can get something lab grown? Cause that's cool and interesting. And, you know, I mean, I'm like a huge, I, I love sci-fi. I love imagining the world in the future. (laughs) And I feel like that aligns with my values in a lot of ways. So I don't know. It's up to you
1: in your own work you use both lab grown and also naturally mined diamonds but you have a very personal relationship with a lot of the miners that you work with yes in most cases
3: yes there's so many people in this industry i have really good friends who are miners montana sapphire miners in montana and then i have wonderful vendors that i work with that live all over the world but this is an evolution and I think it's a really, really important thing to give the opportunity for people to evolve. And when you're talking to a company or a small business who has been in the business for three generations, and they maybe don't always know the provenance of their stone. So something that's important to me is transparency. And sometimes I really want to buy a stone and they don't know the provenance of it. And that's a problem, but I have... I feel very strongly that in order for the industry to move forward into transparency, we should work together. Absolutely. And it's all about inclusivity. If you were to walk through a gem show and you go into someone's booth and I'm going to buy some stones from them. And so they're going to have a section that says these are heated and these are not heated. And to them, that is them being transparent. They might not know the provenance or where those stones came from, but they consider themselves transparent. And so I, as somebody who wants to learn more, who has taken it five steps further with my business, will begin to ask those questions. And my goal is that if I can walk up to that booth or I can meet with a vendor and talk to them and ask them those questions and make them rethink what transparency means, I have a win. Yeah. So to answer your question, do I always know the minor? Do I always know everything? The answer is no. Because sometimes I'll buy something from somebody who is in the process of learning and we have to forgive each other for not always knowing. And I think it's really beautiful to have them call me back and tell me we learned this about our stones and now we know more. And to me, that is my like micro impact that I can make on my community. One of my biggest wins was one year I was walking through a trade show And I went up to a diamond vendor and asked him, asked her actually where the diamonds came from. And she said, I don't know. And she had given me her business card. I handed it back to her. And I said, because you don't know that, I'm not going to buy from you. It's really unfortunate. And she chased me down the hall, got my card, called me back three weeks later. The entire company had done a training session. And she said, now we know. We got them at auction. I was like, I still can't buy from you because you don't know where the auction means that like, who knows that, you know, all the stones go to an auction and they sell them and they could have been mined from anywhere, but, um, at least they were starting on that process and eventually they did find provenance. And then I ended up working with them. Right. So
1: it's a conversation. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think there's a lot of this dialogue that's just now happening, whether it is jewelry, whether it's fashion, whether it's food, it's 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 a huge question that we all need to ask ourselves. Where are the products that we're purchasing with our money coming from? Who is it affecting and where do they end up? Yeah. And I
3: think in our current culture, people can be very black or white about it. And one of the most important things to think about is that this is an evolution and you're dealing with people in a Thousands of years of a certain way of doing business. It's a slow process to make that change happen. And if somebody doesn't know, it's an important thing for them to even say that out loud. And that means they're being honest. And I think that's good and hopefully a step forward Mm -hmm. and hopefully they'll find out. But demonizing companies because they don't know or they're in process, I think is a very scary
1: part of our culture. If some of our listeners out there are jewelry designers themselves, where can they learn more about these conversations that are ongoing about ethics and responsibility within the industry? There's a really wonderful
3: organization called ethicalmetalsmiths.com that has a mission to advance the conversation. It's basically all independent businesses. So you as a customer could go on there and find jewelers. But also if you're a jeweler, you can find vendors and a community to ask questions. We help each other. It's, it's a really, really wonderful thing. One thing that they're going to be launching soon is actually something that I did in my business in 2019, which was really, really difficult. But in response to all of these super, super dark, difficult things that have happened in the past, I wanted to make sure that I am a good actor in the future. So I created a code of conduct that I now have asked all of my vendors to sign. And I also created a transparency review, which is voluntary. And I say that strongly because It's so amazing when I can create a review or ask really, really hard questions about women's rights and fair pay. Of course, I had already asked them that, but I'm making them document it. And of course, the first question is always like, are you a formal entity? But putting your vendors through this process of vetting and making them answer these questions is, again, part of that process of getting them to think about questions that they might not have thought about that maybe will ignite change in the industry. And that's one of the reasons why I'm doing it. And as a jeweler, if you don't already have a transparency review, Ethical Metalsmith is going to be creating a system where you can download one and we can all share.
1: I think that one of the big takeaways Um, from the 2000 teens that we're all going to like perhaps see in the future is this turning point when we start to actually realize what are we doing in terms of creating more things and where do they go in the end? I think
3: that the biggest takeaway for me with learning all of this is the mindset of walking through a store and not thinking each of those garments or objects was born. Right. Asking myself, how did it get here? And asking myself, how much do I care about how it got here? And does that mean that I'm going to have to pay a little bit more? Because ultimately the goal is for all of these things that are responsible to cost the same exact amount as what it is to maybe not do things responsibly and eventually for everyone to be responsible. Yeah.
1: Bliss, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about ethics and responsibility in the jewelry trade. Where can people find more information about your designs? Because you have your fingers in lots of different pots these days. You can find out
3: about my work on my website, blisslau.com. That's B L I S S L A U.com. And on my Instagram, which is at blisslau. I sell exclusively direct. So there pretty much is nowhere else you can find it unless you happen to be in San Francisco. And there's a wonderful store called number three that you could visit.
2: Bliss, thank you so much for joining us and providing some really compelling questions to ask of ourselves and our jewelry purveyors. Being educated about our purchasing power truly has the ability to affect change.
1: Earlier in the interview, Bliss um, Cass mentioned very briefly an initiative that she's working on with female miners. And I want to talk a little bit more about it because it's very cool. She's been working with this company in Tanzania called Moyo Gemstones. That's M-O-Y-O. And, and it's this ethical gemstone collaboration that works with female miners in the Umba Valley in Tanzania. And the company works to, quote, empower women miners to work safely, mine better, improve financial security, and create stable, equitable markets for fair trade. And basically what they do is they provide a whole host of different types of support to help these female miners get their gems from the mine to the market safely and responsibly.
2: Yeah, and the company is a result of a collaboration between the Tanzania Women Miners Association and the international nonprofit PACT, PACT, which operates out of Washington, D.C. The company Everledger provides assistance with implementing blockchain technology for Moyo gemstones, and you can actually buy stones yourself directly through ethical gem traders, Anza Gems here in the U.S. and 1948 in the U.K.,
1: Yeah. And you can also learn more about Moyo Gemstones and their entire team on MoyoGemstones.com. And if you like what they're doing, you can actually even donate to their cause through their not-for-profit partner, Pact. So it's very cool. Check it out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And with that, that does it for us this week, Trust listeners. May you consider the origins of your jewelry next time you get dressed. Please join us this Thursday for our weekly mini-sode. And if you'd like to submit a question to be answered on a future mini-sode, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. You can, of course, always direct message us on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast, which is also our Twitter handle. And you can, of course, follow us on Facebook at dressedpodcast without the underscore.
1: Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartmedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you Thursday. Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the o fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time.